Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Hi from Maine. Hello, yeah. Hi from Maine. Listeners might hear a gentle rippling of a lake and some wind in the leaves. Mm, beautiful. I'm setting the scene, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And this week, we're speaking with Andrew Leland, the writer and editor, about his debut book. It's called The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Yes. And I actually, I had the pleasure to meet Andrew a couple of weeks before I read the book. And so it was so interesting to meet the person and then just read about the way in which he has been working on adjusting and thinking about going blind. Yeah. Cause he has a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which causes people to gradually lose their vision. So right now, as we discuss in our interview, he is about 6% of vision. So he can still see a lot of things, but he is adjusting to this life that he knows, you know, that he's already in the midst of and also that he knows will be coming where he will have even less vision, where he won't be able to do certain things. We'll have to relearn how to do them without sight. And so that's part of what the book's about, but then it's also kind of an inquiry into attitudes around blindness, realities of it, literary representation, media representation, technology, innovation. It was really interesting. I I was telling you before we started recording that it reminds me of that podcast that I actually don't listen to called You Were Wrong About. (laughs) Uh Yeah. (laughs) I, I feel like this book reading it, I was like, oh, you were wrong about blindness. Even just to this thing of like, you know, I always picture people who are blind seeing like a black screen. Right. That's not that's not true at all. It varies so much from person to person. And it's actually rare for people to have no vision or like get down to a more granular thing of like light perception. Do they have light perception? So it's so much more nuanced than I imagined and I you know having just dipped my toe into any kind of reading on disability disability activism it's also really refreshing to to think about it from that perspective as well yeah I really agree let's get to the conversation great we're excited to be speaking with the writer Andrew Leland today His work on disability, access, and technology, as well as other topics, has appeared in publications such as the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, McSweeney's, Art in America, and the New York Review of Books Daily. From 2013 to 2019, he was the host and producer of The Organist, an arts and culture podcast for KCRW, where I was lucky to work with him one time, and he has been an editor at The Believer since 2003. He joins us to discuss his first book, The Country of the Blind a memoir at the end of sight. The book recounts Leland's experience of gradually losing his vision due to a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which eventually results in blindness. The knowledge that it's not a question of if, but when he will become blind, leads him to a deeper investigation of blindness itself, how it's represented in literature, language, and media, what its political and racial dimensions are, the connection it has to technology and innovation, how it can both shape identity and also feel incidental to it. Most importantly, Leland relates the ways blindness is actually experienced by the many people he meets and writes about in his book. Their testimonies help him reckon with the two worlds he finds himself in, 
the blind and the sighted, and close the gap between them. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, too. Andrew, I think we should probably start with you telling us a little bit about the condition that you were diagnosed with when you were younger and how you came to write this book. The condition is called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, and I was diagnosed around 19 years old, but I had sort of self-diagnosed a couple of years before that using Google's long-lost grandfather, like web crawler or something like that. And the way RP works for most people is it's just a very, very slow decline in vision from the outside in. So you've got rods and cones in your retina. Those are the two kinds of cells. And the rods are responsible for peripheral vision and night vision. And so most people with RP first notice it as night blindness in teenage years. And that's how I experienced it. I would go to the movies and just couldn't fathom how easily people were getting up to go grab another drink or go to the bathroom. It just seemed like such a stressful thing to do. Why would you put yourself through that? And after enough experiences like that, I figured something must have been going on. And after the diagnosis, it's so gradual that for many years, really for decades, even though I had this diagnosis and this prognosis hanging over me of, of eventual blindness, it really felt abstract for a very long time. And it's really only been in the last 10 years or so that that blindness has felt present enough in my life and close enough in my life that it was actually a subject that I could write about and that I wanted to write about. And so the book for me really was a way to answer some pretty pressing questions that had arisen that were always looming, but that suddenly felt very close. Specifically, like, what is blindness? What kind of blind person am I going to be? And I would say like the turning point really that really kicked me into gear was about seven years ago now when I moved to Massachusetts because my wife Lily got a job here and I didn't know really anyone. I'd always carried a cane, a white cane folded up in my bag, like kind of in case of emergency. But I decided I was just going to be like a full-time cane user when we moved here. And the cane like radically changed the way people related to me from family members and close friends to total strangers. And that's, I think, when I really started writing and wanting to write more and research more because it was this social experience that was unlike anything I'd experienced. How did it change how people related to you? Blindness is generally conceived of as a binary and the white cane is the most powerful signifier of blindness. And so as soon as somebody sees you with a white cane, generally speaking, they think totally blind. They think you see nothing. Or even independently of that kind of intense binary observation, which brings up a whole set of complicated ideas around like the imposter syndrome that I felt being blind, but also being able to see, it also raises a lot of stigma. So I just went from feeling like a relatively neutral figure in the world, you know? And I think there's like probably places you could poke at that and say like, well, I'm only neutral because I'm like a cis white dude or whatever. But the reality is I went from just like feeling relatively inconspicuous to just like absolutely drawing the gaze of everybody I passed. And this weird cocktail of responses from like pity to aversion to skepticism. And that really ran the gamut. I found it was much more complicated with the people I actually knew, but I detected it in them as well. The cane is such a symbol. And it's interesting here because you're pretty open about 
talking about some of the prejudices that you had towards blind people before you became more and more blind yourself. I really appreciated that about the book, how open you were about that. So I was wondering if you could maybe address some of those ideas that you had. And even with the cane of what it's a symbol of, it's like, it's true when I see someone walking with a cane, I don't think, oh, that's great. Like they're empowered. They have a cane. They can get around. I think sometimes I might also think, oh God, like they're blind. How are they going to get around? You know, so it's it's an instant symbol and it brings a lot about feelings of people who don't really understand what it's like and all the variations of blindness. But maybe talk about that and just some of your own ideas of what it meant to be blind or the connotations you had before. It felt important to me to force myself to be honest in that way in the book, because I think if I want a sighted reader to come away from the book with a different understanding of blindness and a different perspective on it and different attitude towards it and toward blind people, I don't know when I think about my experience as a reader, like the more polemical a book or a text is like the less inclined I am to, you know, I think I get defensive and I'm kind of like, okay, you just like indicted me, but now I'm going to throw this book aside and, and go have some fun. You know, so, and so I feel like <laughs> if I could sort of present to the reader, like my own kind of awakening is far too grand a word, but, but that is how it felt in a way that that didn't feel preachy, that just felt sort of like, yeah, like, of course, we all have these prejudices, because the stigma is so pervasive, like you just you grew up with it. So like, it's not your fault that you that you have that it's, but it is ignorance. So like, let's find our way through it. As far as like, what my perception was, entering into the, the world of blindness, or my perception of blindness before I really immersed myself, you know, I think it's exactly what you said. It's a perception of, you know, like low expectations, I think is the bottom line, like, wow, I don't know how they can do X, Y, or Z, whether it's, you know, working or even just like daily living processes. And it's even more complicated than that for me because I, you know, I started to think in general terms about disability and think about blindness and disability together, but I really had to stop myself. And there's a moment in the book where I'm at the National Federation of the Blinds National Convention, which is like 3,000 blind people in a convention center in Orlando. And I'm starting to feel this like empowerment and like, yeah, like I'm just, you know, one cane among many and like all these cool blind people. And then I sit down at the banquet table and there's a guy who's intellectually disabled and blind with his mom. And he's about my age and it just like threw me for a loop. And I found myself having these like really ableist and uncomfortable thoughts that like, you know, I think everyone has this experience where like the thought goes in your brain and you just like, wish you could expunge it, but then it just, it's there, you know? And then the thought that I had was like, well, what's this guy doing at a blindness convention? Like his other disabilities are so severe. Like what does he have in common? You know, and it felt really risky to include that in the book, but also a way to give myself and the reader, I think a path towards pushing through that and like understanding what ableism even is and like how pervasive it is, but also like a path beyond it. I think the, the answer and the difficult thing about this work is, is it's about not just compassion or empathy, because those feel a little squishy. I mean, those are beautiful ideas and they're important, but I mean, to me, it's more about imagination and like the ability, you know, that kind of perception of somebody on the street and thinking like, how do they eat? How do they put their pants on? You know, and like going beyond that sort of very uncomfortable, judgmental thought and like really thinking like, well, there's probably an answer to that. And like, let's actually put a name to it and figure out 
to how people do live. And then lo and behold, you're like, oh, right. They just like pull their pants on. It's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the ignorance, confronting our own ignorance is something that comes up a lot. And of course, you don't want to make whatever person you're wondering about responsible for filling you in. But um, at the same time, there's this segment that you reference of Jimmy Kimmel and Donald Glover, like laughing about how Stevie Wonder ends up with these like beautiful women. Mm -hmm. Um, What would he care? Or like how his album covers look good? Like why should they? And just this question, I think, right. Like we discredit the idea that the blind would have any relationship to visual stimuli like that. And that was something I was really interested in. I was hoping you could talk more about. I mean, again, like to try to have compassion for not compassion for like the ableist perspective, but just to like understand where that comes from. Like it makes a certain amount of sense. Like blind people by definition aren't, they have difficulty accessing visual information, right? It's like they are excluded. But I think like the next step to take then is to say, ought they be excluded? And then like, are they necessarily excluded or is visual information like so untranslatable into any other form? And uh, of course the answer is no, like there is no reason why blind people need to be excluded. And it's, you know, if you think about like culture, culture is constantly kind of crossing over into different modalities in terms of like, I don't know, the first thought is kind of rarefied, but just like criticism, you know, like we're constantly reading about music or art or even beyond that kind of more formal idea. There's just like the idea of social relations more broadly. Like we, when you think about what beauty is as a blind person, there are lots of ways to appreciate the beauty of something non-visually, right? Like if you think about a relationship, there's like the sort of the timbre of somebody's voice or their smell or like more emotionally, like your, the way your narratives are entwined and the way you experience things together, but also just living in a, in a world where the majority of people are sighted, there are all these visual markers too, and you can get information from that and you can take value from that. And so while I understand the sort of like, unconsidered first impulse that Jimmy Kimmel and Donald Glover began from, you know, I think you, you have to push past it and understand that like blind people are living in a sighted world by and large. And so you don't need to exclude them. And it's actually not even that difficult to include blind people in that. I want to go back to like the experience of beauty. Cause I want to hear more about how that, how you're doing that, how that's happening for you, how it's changed. But also I think maybe we should talk about how that's more complicated for you or how that's been complicated for you because this condition is gradual. You did not instantly become blind and you were not born blind. And so you find yourself kind of in between these two worlds for a long time, really part of neither, neither the sighted, the fully sighted nor the fully blind. And you mentioned earlier feeling a little bit like an imposter when you had that cane, when you would pull it out and people would be like, oh, I thought your vision is different than what it is. And so I wonder if you could talk about that. Like, how did you navigate that in-between state that you were in for so long? I'm still in and and I'm still navigating it. And I feel that acutely now talking about this book with blind on the cover, you know, and I'm described as a blind person and, you know, I describe myself as a blind person and then I'm still like using my vision constantly. And, you know, I think I had this illusion that I would write this book and like think through those questions really deeply and then be done and then wake up the next day and realize that it is still this like ongoing, ongoing process. And 
intellectually and on many days or at least many hours of the day, I, I have sort of made peace with it, but I still am penduluming constantly between those feelings of like, right now I'm too sighted to be blind. And then an hour later, I'm too blind to be sighted. And it's just this, this constant navigation. And the reason for that, I mean, the obvious reason is just that I have like 6% of what a fully sighted person sees, you know, so I'm seeing the world through this very narrow tube. And functionally, that means that I have to do things differently. Like I have to do things in a blind way a lot. Like the white cane is absolutely necessary. Using a screen reader so that I can listen to text rather than have to do it visually is necessary. But at the same time, you know, I'm still looking at the text with magnification. And the conclusion that I came to or the kind of realization that I had is that it would be disastrous to cling to vision. And so even while I have vision, I have to really force myself to let go of it and learn these other techniques and embrace them and use them even while there may still be vision hanging around for many years to come. In fact, only like 10 or 15% of blind people have no light perception. And so the reality is I might have some acuity for a really long time. It might be like negligible, but there might, you know, I could still like smash my face up against my phone and see that photograph if I need to. But having talked to so many blind people, the reality is like, there's diminishing returns there and it's less and less worth it. And it's sort of like putting yourself through that strain to squeeze that visual information into your brain when you can be so much more productive and effective and happy doing things in this sort of, in the blind way. That's a really tough thing to do because vision is so primary. And I think not just culturally and socially, but also just if you grow up with it, it's such a central thing, but it's so important to let go of it. Because if I didn't, I had this experience this morning, actually. I'm like embarrassed about it, but I'll share it with you. Like all these milestones are things that I think there's this perception that like blindness happens to you, like because of there's some like biological thing where like I'm only as blind as like the number of rod cells I still have. But so much of it is conscious and intentional, which is to say like I had to decide when I wasn't safe to drive anymore. And I had to decide when the cane was probably a good idea. And like today I decided probably can't talk on the phone and cross streets anymore, you know, which like sounds crazy, but you know, I still like had enough vision that I was like, I can hear, I can see, and like, I can sort of multitask. And today I had a close call and I was just like, wow, I definitely shouldn't be doing that anymore. And it's just like, that's an example of this process continuing where I think I've, I've got enough vision to do it. And then I realized that like, I don't. It seems to me that so much of the book is about living with ambiguity. Yeah. And that that is difficult for for anyone and for anyone experiencing, you know, like, something degenerative that it's like you think, oh, if it's like this now, like what will it be like tomorrow? What will it be like in the future? And that it's it's really hard. And um, we all want resolution. At a certain point in the book, you say, why don't you just put your head down and barrel into blindness? Because that resolution would almost be easier than the kind of day-to-day differences or the fear of like what the future will be like and waiting to go blinder and blinder. So that seemed like a, a big part of your experience to me and almost like the fear around the condition is almost worse than having to adapt to it. It's like that unknowing part. So I was thinking uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think what I was just talking about is a form of ambiguity because there's ambiguity in what I see even, you know, and I think one thing that my friend Leona Godin, who wrote a really great book called Their Plant Eyes that came out in 2021, that is definitely like a friend of my book. Jimmy, she's a friend of mine, but our books are friends too. She talked about how when you have limited vision or low vision, having knowledge of what you're looking at 
helps you see it more. And there's just something so interesting about that experience that I'm having more and more where like, if I know where I am and I'm looking at something, I can see it perfectly. But then if I get confused or if I'm, you know, if I'm in an unfamiliar place and I don't have the cues to orient me, my vision is suddenly much worse. And it's this like experience of like being very sighted and very visually oriented and being, feeling completely blind, like in the span of a day. And so that's a radical experience of ambiguity and it informs the sort of emotional roller coaster. I think you're alluding to where I can feel very kind of secure in it and then suddenly totally destabilized. And I think this is why it feels so important to me to accept blindness, even with vision hanging around, because it's sort of, that's the only path through that ambiguity, because then it allows me to just enjoy the sight that I have, you know, use it. Like I don't need to deny myself the pleasure of looking at things, but functionally when I'm crossing that street, realizing that that's where the ambiguity can become literally deadly and also like emotionally deadly. And so I need to, to use my ears. Part of the orientation in this book is, or the process of reorienting yourself in the new space is it's a brand new cultural space too. So you're finding yourself in a new culture. And in the beginning, you and your wife go to a a meeting of um, blind and disabled people. And you're really, you're really sort of put off by it. But slowly with time, as you said, there's this conference where you're, you're feeling a little bit more empowered. But in general, you're, you're sort of orienting yourself to this new culture and you're learning. It struck me that you're learning kind of the basic things about like being part of a group over again. And then there's like a part where a guy explains blind humor. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, here's what's acceptable. Here's what you can joke about. Here's what you can't joke about. Which is funny because, right, as like an adult, you kind of... I feel like you kind of know what's okay to joke about. Maybe at a certain, at a certain point, you kind of get it. Um, and then here you are relearning it all over again. So I wonder what, what that experience was like for you, sort of orienting yourself to these like basic cultural frameworks, figuring them out again as an adult. With other adults, you're not, I think also when you're first doing it, you're also kind of a kid among other kids probably. Totally. And nothing made me feel that way more than learning Braille, where it's literally the ABCs. Right. And my kid who's now 10, but he, at the time, I think, you know, been studying it for probably four years or something, five years, you know, so he was five and it was interesting to see how much, how interested he was in it and how like easily it fit into a kindergarten framework, you know, and I really did feel like a kindergartner. It was strange because then I quickly started reading very grown up books in Braille, but just like at the pace of that, a kindergartner would read their picture book. And that experience, that's a really wonderful observation. Cause I think I just hearing you say that I can think of so many examples of cane travel too, particularly when I would wear sleep shades, which I do, you know, for the reasons that we just talked about, you know, really forcing myself to learn the non-visual way to do things so that I don't rely on a, on a um, unreliable vision, like getting lost in, in a bathroom is an incredibly humbling experience. You know, that's not an experience that children have, but it is an experience that like knocks you down a couple pegs of like this adult competence that you feel. And I think the way through that for me has been the rewards that it offers. You know, I think like the real, like learning Braille, when I feel anxiety about becoming blind, you know, and that anxiety that Kate, you were referring to of just like, when is this going to come? And when is like the real thing going to come in that ambiguity? Like knowing that I have Braille to sort of fall back on in that way, like it's incredibly reassuring and I draw strength from it. And I, from all these things, from like the tech geekery that like, you know, I feel like I, I had this revelation halfway through writing the book where I had been putting all this work into learning 
how to use my computer without the screen and, you know, just do everything with audio. And, you know, halfway through, I was like, okay, you know what? Like if there was this sudden acceleration that I don't think is going to happen, but if it happened and I lost all my sight, like I could finish this book. And that just, that, you know, it was incredible confidence booster. And so for all the humbling and embarrassing aspects of that kindergarten experience, the payoff is just totally worth it. But it requires, I think, you know, if I cling to the grown-up sense of like, well, I, I'm so much better at reading visually, you know, I'm going to read so much more slowly than I can with a screen reader now. And I wouldn't have finished the book because I would, you know, if I'm trying to do it all visually, my eyes burn out and I would work for an hour a day and that I would have not been able to finish. So there's a real urgency to that work that motivated me to push past the embarrassment of being a kindergartner again. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Andrew Leland, author of The Country of the Blind. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Heidi Julevitz on the line with us today. Heidi's new book is called Directions to Myself, a memoir of four years, and Heidi is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Heidi, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend a book called Close to the Knives, a Memoir of Disintegration, and it's by David Wanarovich. Okay, tell us how you came to that book. I came to this book because the very excellent local bookstore in my neighborhood, Book Culture, I trust their recommendations implicitly, and they had it turned out on the bookshelf, and I had been meaning to read it for a very long time, and I feel as though... There is such this purifying, I wouldn't even call it outrage. I find his voice to be so clear and I feel as though it is made clear by not necessarily his outrage. For example, one of the chapters is called Being Queer in America, a Journal of Disintegration. It's outrage, but it's also just genuine mystification. <laughs> that any of this could be happening. Like it just is morally so mystifying to him. And I find that to actually be, there's just this kind of clarity to his voice. He's often describing chaos. His life was fairly chaotic and violent and tragic. And yet there feels as though there, it's almost like he's on this gimbal, but the gimbal always writes. And I, I find that tension between chaos and stability to be really engrossing. You know what I read recently? A small book that I found at Printed Matter that's called A Day in the Life of David Wanyarovich. Have you read that? No. It's really great. So it's it's told by another person who calls him throughout the day and makes her tell him what he did that day. And he goes to Allen Ginsberg's house to shoot a photo spread for a magazine. Allen Ginsberg is like completely insane, lives in a dump. It's really good. And it's mostly a transcript of their phone conversation. So there's not really a lot of editorializing. It's just him talking kind of casually, picking up the phone and, and talking about his day. So if you're in, into him, I thought that was a really good, it was a really fun read. And I kind of read it standing at Printed Matter. I will look forward to reading that. That actually sounds amazing. Heidi, tell us the title of this book again and the author. It's called Close to the Knives, A Memoir of Disintegration by David Wanarovich. It sounds great. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you so much. 
We've been talking to Heidi Julevitz. Her new book is called Directions to Myself, a memoir of four years. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Andrew Leland, author of The Country of the Blind. I mean, it also sounds like learning Braille for you was like learning a new language with all the kind of neural richness that that would come with. And that as opposed to just listening to books, when you read them in Braille, you have a really deep or a deeper perhaps experience with them. I think that's true. I mean, there's debates among blind people and and others about whether reading with your ears is reading or are you just being told a story and, and reading only happens when you ha- can have that kind of almost manual control over how you engage with the text. And, you know, and Braille does, you know, you have access to all the punctuation where, you know, in an audio book, you don't have that or in, in text to speech. And I have found that there is a connection between visual reading and Braille and tactile reading where when I read a text in Braille, I just have a deeper sense of the, the structure. It's like, you know, close reading. When I was in college, I learned what close reading was. And then when I learned Braille, I was like, oh, this is close reading. Like my fingers are on it, you know, <laughs> but it's true. Like, I think you really do engage with the text more deeply. That's not to say that reading with your ears is inferior though, because I, it's complicated because I do a lot of reading, not just audiobooks, but like super fast synthetic speech, like an AI reading it. And that's incredibly powerful. And I can get a lot out of a text that way, but I will concede that if I want to go as close a possible reading, Braille's the way to go. Or visually, I still read with magnification too. I wanted to ask about, I mean, speaking of Braille, it sounds from your book that fewer and fewer people know Braille. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it takes time to teach people. It takes resources. And there's a point in the book, I think, where you kind of come into a political consciousness about what it means to be blind in America. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily your aim at first to write about that, but it dawns on you. And then it's like you start kind of digging and seeing that 70% of the blind in the U.S. are unemployed and um, other facts and figures and kind of like owning up to your privilege of being able to get whatever technical gadget you want to help you and realizing, oh, other people don't have that advantage. So I just, I was curious if you could speak a little bit to that. That's a pretty abysmal figure. Mm -hmm. And just the state of actually being blind in the U.S. and what kind of, you know, resources people have if they don't have money. I think you're right that I did have a kind of gradual political awakening, you know, over the course of writing the book that I think is still ongoing for me. But, and you're right too, to point out that important part of that was recognizing my privilege, not just as somebody, you know, who can afford to buy myself a refreshable Braille display so I can read eBooks. It's basically like a Kindle, but for Braille. So you can just like load a bunch of books on it and read them and it refreshes just like a page of a screen does. But not just the economic privilege, but even the privilege of having gone through my education as a sighted person, you know, and seeing what the experience of many blind people is in school, where accessing textbooks is often, you know, you get the textbook three months late, if at all. And really just back to this idea of low expectations. And so many teachers, you know, there are, of course, wonderful teachers who who aren't this way, but I think just like the public at large, I would say most people have these misconceptions of blindness. You have a blind student and, you know, there's just so many stories of students saying, I want to learn calculus. And the teacher's like, I don't know how I would teach a blind guy calculus. Like, I'm sorry, 
that's a very common story. And so it's not a surprise then that from a young age, like it's such an uphill battle to try to, you get through school and then to enter the job market when it's even harder, right? Like the teacher's job is to support you no matter where you're at. The employer's job is to say, I have no idea how you would do this work and I have no incentive to try to figure that out. That's going to be expensive, you know? So that's, I think, where that 70% figure comes from. Not so much blind people's inability to do the work, but just the general skepticism on the part of the vast majority of employers of how a blind person can do the work. And the other piece of it that I encountered that's related, maybe sits in between those two, is the government assistance that exists. Not so much the financial assistance, but the training that people can get from the state. Every state, more or less, has a commission for the blind. And there's a pretty entrenched history of those low expectations, even in people who are trained to be workers for the blind, in sort of saying, but we can probably get you a job like uh, refilling vending machines. Like that's a pretty good one, you know, and sort of just this, this idea of the blind trades. That's like a very, you know, started in, in the 18th century of like grinding tobacco and caning chairs or tying straw into brooms. But, you know, I think there's a version of that that persists today where people whose job it is to help blind people find employment really default to like restocking vending machines. And there's, you know, I know people who do that work and it is really they make good money doing it and they're able to support themselves and, you know, support side hustles as like DJs and, and stand up comedians. And it's like no shame whatsoever in that. But I just think when that's the only solution that so many people are hearing, it's really dispiriting. You have a chapter in the book about the people who are making different kinds of technology available to blind people, different apps, different gadgets, like we just mentioned. But the idea of progress is a little bit more complicated than that. And I was curious what you think progress might look like, whether it's possible. I mean, <laughs> I guess we can debate like whether progress at all hap- happens at all, but what might it look like in terms of, is it more independence for a blind person? Is it more jobs? Is it ways to harness these technologies in more useful ways? Is there some understanding or that you have about what progress might be? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, especially when you frame the question in terms of technology, is a built-in attention in design, whether it's an app or a curriculum or a school or a building with disability in mind at the outset. Because I think what you see over and over again are these remediation processes where people say, oh, crap, our website is inaccessible, let's fix it. But they've already built it in an accessible way. And I know the first time I heard somebody say that access was a human right, I was skeptical, you know, like, what does that mean? Like, why is it so important for the ability to like order a pizza online using a screen reader? Like, it's not really a human right, right? But I think it is, you know, I've come around to it. And it comes down to like the, your question about why should Stevie Wonder care how nice his album covers are? It's like, there is a base level of inclusion is the right word, but I dislike that word because it's become such a buzzword. But I think it's, it is inclusion. And inclusion is not just about like inclusion in the political process or like, you know, it's not just like the tax websites that should be accessible, like pizza too, right? And art too. And, and I think when you think about that as a human right, like that everybody in society should be able to participate in all aspects of society, you know, then when you build that 
pizza website, you're like, oh, right. What about the blind user? We got to make sure that this button is labeled so that when they are using their screen reader, it doesn't just say button and they hear checkout and they can actually click on it. So, you know, progress, I think for me is first and foremost, that attitude of inclusivity in the way we build things, whether it's a art exhibit or a pizza website. And I think then that leads to the bigger idea, which is, which does change that unemployment figure, which has to do with altering one's expectations. Because I think if you are thinking about accessibility as a human right, then you're thinking, oh, okay, well, the blind person can order a pizza on their own and they can do their taxes on their own and they can like find the office because the office doors are labeled with Braille, you know? And, and so I think a lot of things flow from that basic original idea of let's imagine a world that has disabled people in it and build it thusly. Yeah, and how much certain innovations can benefit everyone. Like I think of this all the time, less now, but as someone who's pushed a stroller around New York City and New York City subways and like the elevators are great, but when there aren't elevators, it's much harder. And I've wondered many times, like, God, how does someone in a wheelchair get around New York? Because so many times it's just a crapshoot if they're going to be elevators or ramps, you know, it's like, but when there are, it's not just beneficial to someone in a wheelchair, it's beneficial to everyone because it makes the whole experience more user-friendly. And even like, you know, the, you bring up typewriters as having been invented for blind people. It's Mm -hmm. like, typewriters are great. They are really helpful. (laughs) Closed captioning. That's another thing I like. I love closed captioning. I use it all the time. These things that make society more livable for everyone, they don't just enrich, you know, the people that they're necessarily meant for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The curb cut effect is what they call that. And, you know, it's exactly the example you use, like you design the curb cut to allow a wheelchair user to roll on and off from curb independently, but then you with your stroller, a non-disabled person, totally delighted. And I kind of see it both ways. Like that is such a well-documented thing. Like from, like you say, the first patents for typewriters were, had them as, as basically writing machines for the blind. The first LPs were used by blind people like a decade before they were in larger circulation to create the first, really the first audiobooks were for blind people to try to fit more of a text on on one side of a record. The other way to think about it is that that's all great, but like to the point that I was just making, even if there was no universal design principles, like it's still important to do the thing, right? And like, I remember I was interviewing a woman who had a mobility disability. She was, I mean, she called herself paraplegic. She pretty much didn't have arms or legs. And she was saying to me, like, she just wishes that like for one day, I think was her her point, like if all bathrooms were just locked for one day and what that would do to people's consciousness, you know, because she goes into a, into a bathroom and somebody's like, oh, sorry, I was in the, you know, the handicap stall, like my bad, I didn't realize you were there. And she's fuming, you know, or like somebody's like, oh, sorry, like the handicap bathroom is like actually up that flight of stairs, like my bad. <laughs> and, and I think it's so easy for somebody who when you've never been in a wheelchair, as I haven't, but you know, it's so easy to just think like, that's wrong. Like we should fix that. But like, until you're like have to piss and it's been two hours and like, there's still nowhere to go. And that feeling of just helplessness and rage, like until you really felt that you're not gonna, when you're designing the building or designing the bathroom or even using the bathroom and going into the handicap stall and occupying that, you know, you're not going to have that urgency. So I think universal design is such a fascinating and important idea, but like, I don't want to lose touch with the other side of it too, which is just like the, the basic sense of, of urgency that, that is so hard to maintain around 
including and considering people with disabilities. Aside from these other sort of ways in which you've experienced the world while you're going blind, one of the things that I thought was super interesting is that you're also discussing sort of the primal feelings that people have, like hunger, sexuality, desire, and how those might be impacted by blindness. And I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't really thought about it. Yes, of course, like a way in which you might want to really eat a cheeseburger is that you see a really good looking cheeseburger Mm. or the way that you desire somebody else or feel desired a romantic relationship is that you experience them visually. But I wonder if you could talk about that and how have you navigated that change for yourself? It's really interesting. You know, so those examples, I encountered them and I, and I write about them through this book called Touching the Rock by John Hull, who was a British theologian who lost his vision sort of gradually and then suddenly, as I think often happens with kind of genetic causes of blindness. But when he was in middle age, living in England and was working at a university and then went blind and then recorded this cassette diary of his sort of very visceral and very like phenomenological, like very precise observations of like how his whole world was changing. And it's a remarkable document. And then he transcribed the tapes and made them into this book called Touching the Rock. And there's a really good film called Notes on Blindness that they made using some of the actual audio from those tapes. I recommend it. But I got to say that like Hull since my book has come out, I've been hearing from blind people who've had a similar experience where like for a certain kind of blind reader, like you encounter that book or, you know, somebody's going blind, you encounter the book and you're like, oh, this is awesome. Like this guy is so smart and he's so precise and like, it's really well-written and it's like touching on all of the fears. But then like for a certain group of my friends who are blind, it's almost like become like the Necronomicon or something. It's like this like fucked up devil book because (laughs) he goes so deep into the fear. And, you know, and he has these passages that I quote that I think you're referring to where he's like, or somebody says like the waiter is passing around the potatoes, but like, what does that mean to me? Like potatoes? I don't know. Like I can't see the cheeseburger, like you're saying. And the same thing with sex. Like I just, you know, like somebody says that there's a woman here, but like until I have the full bodied impact of like the sight of her, like the desire, he says, like, I feel the pangs of sexual desire, just like the pangs of hunger, but it doesn't, it no longer has that immediacy. And this was one of the reasons why, I mean, it's a no brainer, but like so glad that I actually had blind people read my manuscript before publication because a blind friend of mine who's been blind from birth read it. And she was like, yeah, right. Like I like food. I like sex. Like this is ridiculous. And, you know, and I talked to other blind people too. And the conclusion that I came to is like, Hull of course, is entitled to his despair. And, but that book is a chronicle of the despair and the grief that one experiences with the immediacy of vision loss. And that over time, you learn, just like you learn to read through a different modality and you learn to navigate and orient yourself through a different modality, you learn to appreciate food and sex, you know, and desire through different modalities. And so, I was just so grateful to my friend Sherry for pointing that out and others, Annika as well, because it, I think it's really seductive to kind of like lean into that despair and just think like, well, food and sex will never be the pleasures that they once were. And, you know, you talk to enough blind people and you're like, oh no, blind people like food, blind people like sex just as much as the sighted person. <laughs> and it's a process of, of recalibration and reorientation. I mean, I think your question gets at like a much bigger 
idea that I still wrestle with, which is the question of diminishment. And I've been very careful in the book, but also just in my life to navigating this very tricky terrain in between all these ideas that I feel very passionately are real about how blindness is actually this sort of mind expanding, world expanding experience for me, where I'm encountering all these new ideas and new people. And it is, my world is larger, but there also is a way in which your world does get smaller too, right? Like I am losing a lot of visual information and visual ways of relating to people. And so I don't want to say that there is no diminishment, you know, and I think when you have a sighted brain and a sighted framework, like there is a diminishment, sure. Like it is lovely to be able to see the food on the plate and the the contours of another person's body who you desire. But the story doesn't end there, I guess, is my point. And that's sort of thing I have to hold on to. And that just because there is a loss there and there is a diminishment, it's not like a totalizing diminishment. It's not like a terminal diminishment and that there are alternate routes. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like you talk to a number of people who say like, they're glad they're blind, Mm -hmm. you know, or like, it's not that they're just lamenting the shift if they weren't born blind. You know, it's like, it hasn't been so awful. It could be seen as a positive or like, you also reference, you know, deaf people who want to be deaf or who, who hook up with another deaf person so they can have a deaf child. I mean, maybe there's other reasons for that as well. But that line between accepting, enjoying, being happy for the state that you're in and not wanting to oppose it, because that does seem like a form of ableism. But at the same time, and I think you talk about this, it's like you can feel that way. And at the same time, you hope your son doesn't have RP or like having fear that he does. Or what does it mean if you say, I hope he doesn't? where that leaves you. And that does seem like a real tricky terrain. And especially maybe in terms of like the politics of, of disability, you know, I know that there's lots of different opinions on that, but maybe you could just talk about that. Yeah. It's so complicated over the course of the years that I wrote the book. You know, I think I, I felt so delighted by the kind of disability 101 or, or you could call it like first wave disability studies idea of like the social model of disability, which I just found kind of mind blowing where it's like, oh, blindness isn't a disability. It's the world that's built for sighted people that disables blind people. Mm -hmm. And that's true. But I think a lot of disability activists and scholars and thinkers have in more recent years complicated that idea. And I think if you think about disability more broadly, like one example that I find compelling is like chronic illness or, you know, conditions that cause, you know, acute pain on a regular basis. It's really difficult to say that the experience of pain is something that you might court and that like is a beautiful identity that, or rather it's not that it's like purely negative, but it's also not purely positive. And you have to sort of, I think, account for that. And I think I think blind people are less inclined to account for that in some cases, at least in like some of the sort of political activist circles that I encountered. But I do think that when you think about like this question of diminishment that we were talking about, you know, and like people generally when they grow up sighted and become blind do go through that period of grieving. And the NFB is sort of like the most radical is a complicated word, but you know, they are the sort of most like militant organized blind movement in the US. And a number of like high ranking NFB leaders told me like, you know what, I think we actually have historically done a pretty bad job talking to people who have just gone blind because they're in that emotional state. And the NFB is all about like 
blindness is a neutral characteristic. It's like hair color. Like, a, yeah, it's inconvenience. Like it's a pain in the ass sometimes. Sure. But like not a disability, not something that is anything worse than like having a big nose or whatever. <laughs> um, and if you're somebody who's just gone blind and you're in that John Hull period of like, I don't see cheeseburgers. I don't see my wife. I don't see the faces of my kids. I can't find my way to the goddamn coffee shop that's down the block, you know, like hearing that blindness is neutral characteristic isn't going to do much for you. So a lot of the thinking I've been doing on and off the page has been kind of like, yeah, vacillating between those two poles and trying to figure out my place in them, between them. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I think that's a nice place to end. And I really appreciate you speaking with us. My pleasure. That was Andrew Leland. His new book is called The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.